Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. Hey listeners. Welcome back to Buried Motives. We're so glad you're joining us this week. We really are. And if you're enjoying listening to us, we would really appreciate if you would tell all your friends about us. Absolutely. We're trying to grow our podcast and the best way to do that is word of mouth. So if you enjoy us, we'd love for you to tell your friends, have them check us out, or even take them on some of our social media posts so they too can listen. And don't forget your neighbors and your coworkers. That's right. And that's our shameless plug for the day. <laughs> but our main focus regardless of how many people are listening, is the dirtbags that we're talking about. And boy, do I have one for you today. I can't wait to hear. Okay. Today, we are taking a wild ride to the UK to discuss a woman who was coined the UK's most dangerous woman. And I might have to agree, she's right up there. I don't know. We've covered some interesting females. We really have. And she's right up there with them. She's in the running. There is debate if she is considered a serial killer or if she is more rightfully classified as a spree killer. This woman killed three men in the span of just 10 days, two of them being on the same day. 10 days between killings is considered too long to be a true spree killing. Usually there is little to no time between killings, even though the location of the murder typically changes. However, a serial killer generally has more time between killings. A serial killer is considered a person who murders three or more people, with each murder taking place over more than the span of a month, meaning they have a cooling-off period between each murder. Yeah, in 10 days, there's not much of a cooling-off period there. There isn't. But is it a spree killing or is it a serial killing? She kind of falls somewhere in between. What did all these men do to take her off? Oh, nothing. Really? Yeah, she's so terrifying. This woman is truly in a class of her own. People may debate over what type of killer she is, but the one thing that everyone can agree on is that she is a massive dirtbag. The other thing people can't seem to concede on pertaining to this dirtbag is her name. What? Honestly, I found multiple reports of her first name being Joanna, and then just as many reports with her name being listed as Joanne, even on legal documents. In a documentary I watched produced by Real Stories, she is referred to as Joanne. Plus, in an arrest video of hers, she introduces herself as Joanne. She's actually flirting with some of the officers. She's being arrested? Yes. Oh, man. So Joanne is what I'm going to call her. And a little side note, just to confuse us even more, she also often went by Joe with her family and friends. But we're sticking with Joanne. Just know it could be legally Joanna. And this was a first for me to have a challenging time figuring out the person's name that we are discussing. So I just had to pick a name and go with it. As we often do, let's start at the beginning with the birth of a dirtbag. Joanne Christine Dennehy was born in August of 1982 in St. Albans, Hertfordshire, England, but grew up just eight kilometers or five miles away in Harpenden. As always, I apologize if I say any of the names in this case weird or incorrectly. I'm trying my best. By all accounts, Joanne had what seemed like a normal upbringing. Her father, Kevin Dennehy, worked as a security guard, and her mother, Kathleen, worked in a grocery shop. 
She has a younger sister named Maria, and it is reported that the two of them were especially close to one another growing up. Maria was two years younger and was essentially a built-in friend for Joanne. They slept in bunk beds in the same room, they played dolls together, and they even made up their own secret language. Oh, that's always so fun. It is. Actually, my mom and her friend made up a secret language in school. It was an assignment. And so my mom taught us kids, and some of us in our family can still speak it fluently with each other. So like Pig Latin? Similar, but it's something they created. It's kind of fun, actually, to have that. <laughs> I can't imagine how hard it must be for a family to come to terms with a member of their family becoming a cold-blooded murderer. From what I could tell, Maria was able to make a very successful life for herself, and hopefully she is still doing well. And knowing what a successful life that her sister made for herself really gives some talk to, is it nurture or nature in this case? Mm, Because they both had a similar upbringing, and so one did so well, and the other one not so much. Exactly. And I do have some theory on to maybe why this happened, but it's just a theory. Right. That argument to me is always interesting because they would have shared some of the genetics, too. That is true. Good point. Joanne's parents were described as strict but loving. Joanne did well in school when she was younger and enjoyed playing sports. She had dreams of becoming a lawyer. She attended Roundwood Park School and played on the school hockey and netball teams. And I didn't know exactly what netball was, so I looked it up and I went on a little rabbit hole. It was actually so interesting. (laughs) Did you see my eyebrows perk? Like, what the heck is netball? (laughs) That's why I'm going to tell you and all of our listeners. People often describe it as women's basketball and think it was created to stop women from playing regular basketball, but that is not really the case. A woman named Clara Bayer asked James Naismith, the inventor of basketball, in the 1980s to send her a copy of the rules to England. A good old Canadian. (laughs) That's right. He sent them to her, and her misinterpretation of its rules resulted in the development of a totally separate sport, which was later named netball. That is hilarious. Isn't it? So he sent her the rules and she was trying to figure it out. And this is what they got out of it. So it was supposed to be basketball, but she ended up creating her own sport from it. From what I could gather, it is different mainly because you can't dribble or bounce the ball, nor can you run while you have possession of the ball. I can see how that happened because when he originally invented the game, they weren't allowed to dribble, but then they weren't allowed to travel either. And so they had to allow some way to move the ball other than passing. Mm -hmm. And so that was like an add on to the game afterwards. Yeah, I just found it really interesting. And if my husband's right, I think he said there's no backboard either. It's just the net. Oh, it's just straight hoop. Yeah. Any of our UK listeners, you can set us straight if we have it wrong. That's just what I found by searching what is netball. But now coming out of that little rabbit hole, things went smoothly for Joanne until she hit her teenage years. When she was 13, she started interacting with boys who were much older than she was. And at age 15, she started dating a 20-year-old man named John Trainer. Oh, that's quite a bit older. It is, especially at those ages. Like Mm -hmm. five years when you're older is not a big deal. But between 15 and 20, there's a lot of development going on in those years. And even just totally different places in your life. Oh, yeah. How do those two even end up in the same circles to be interacting to meet each other? Well, they met each other while John was out walking his German shepherd dog in a park one day in 1997. So it was just a random meeting. Hmm. And was she an animal lover? She wasn't an animal hater. (laughs) (laughs) I think she was just in the park. (laughs) She wasn't somebody that tortured animals then. No, no, she did not torture animals at all. 
This would be considered an illegal relationship. However, John maintains that things didn't turn sexual until Joanne turned 16, which was the legal age of consent in the UK. So I don't know. We'll just take that with a grain of salt. But John does seem to be a pretty decent guy in this whole story. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Other than he dated a 15-year-old when he was 20. Yeah. (laughs) Joanne started to skip school and heavily consumed drugs and alcohol. Along with John, who's a good guy. (laughs) Right? Yeah, he probably was too. But not to her extent. Hmm. You can tell me your opinions of John after you learn more about him. Okay. (laughs) She would sometimes even show up to school intoxicated. This also led her to get into trouble with the law, mostly petty crimes like theft. Mm, That's a slippery slope that often happens. Mm -hmm. Onlookers would say that she just fell into the wrong crowd. It is interesting to reflect on this change in Joanne. It seemed sudden and without explanation. It is believed that she came from a good home and was well taken care of. Joanne would much later claim that she had been abused, but her claims were not really believed or substantiated. My personal opinion is that perhaps there was some sort of sexual assault or abuse that took place in her early teens. She flocked towards older men and would later target men as her victims. She would also flirt with men and women all the time, which to me means she was seeking validation. It actually gave me baby Eileen Warnos vibes. But this is purely just my speculation. Hmm. By age 16, Joanne moved out to live with John, and her partying ways just increased. She started to have violent outbursts when she was under the influence, and John was often at the receiving end of that violence. Beginning in her teens, Joanne got pregnant twice and gave birth to two beautiful little girls. Her first daughter was born in 1999 when Joanne was 17. I read in one report that Joanne surprisingly cleaned up her act while pregnant. She stopped using drugs and drinking for the sake of her babies. Once they were born, all bets were off and Joanne reverted to her toxic ways. So who took care of her kids? John. Oh, so this is where I changed my opinion to John? I think so. (laughs) Once they start having kids, it seems like John cleans up his act and is taking his responsibility as a dad very seriously. He is the more mature one of the both of them. That is true. People said she never really seemed to bond with her girls. John said about her having children, quote, She never wanted the kids. She always said she wanted it to be just me and her. We took a photo of her holding the baby. You could see in her face she was not interested. Oh, those poor children. Joanne started to use harder drugs like cocaine and began having extramarital affairs with both men and women. Throughout this case, everyone seems to state that people, both men and women, were drawn to Joanne. People couldn't resist her. It sounds like she had this bigger-than-life attitude, which can be enticing to be around. Oh, absolutely. Kind of magnetizing. Mm -hmm. John said that while he would be working 17-hour shifts, Joanne would be partying and sleeping with the neighbors. Oh, but he stuck it out with her. For a while. Okay. On top of all of this, Joanne sadly began self-harming. She would cut herself often, sometimes even while engaging in sexual activity. She was also watching what was described as significantly violent pornography. And was she into BDSM? She was into giving and receiving pain. Okay. During sexual activity, yes. After John found out about her affairs, after their first child was born, he left with their daughter. However, he did end up taking her back. At that time, Joanne got a job at a farm where she dug vegetables. Although she was working, her drinking increased, and she eventually convinced her employer to pay her in alcohol. What? About this, John said, quote, She was being paid in bottles of whiskey and vodka. 
she was coming home paralytic, smashing up the place. So she was a violent drunk, and she was drunk all the time. What employer does that? I don't know. Keeping her off the books, I guess. Yeah, I guess. And maybe you can still dig vegetables when you're hammered? I don't know. But even just morally. Right. (laughs) You know this woman has an infant and a husband at home that she's supposed to be out making money for, and I'm just going to pay her an alcohol because it's cheaper for me? It's got to be a dirtbag employer too, no? Yeah, it's not a very upright standing citizen type of thing to do. No. While in a rage, Joanne almost pushed her daughter down the stairs when she barged past her. She was drunk and physically abusing John. He again left with their child and went to live with his mom. They were apart for about a year and a half. During this time, it is alleged that Joanne continued to spiral. She spent time in a psychiatric facility and had turned to sex work to pay for her addictions, which landed her in jail. Again, another one of those slippery slopes when you become addicted to substances. After this time apart, John and Joanne got back together once more in 2003, and this is when they had their second daughter together. Again, it is said that she straightened up during this pregnancy, but then hit the bottle even harder afterwards. She was drinking strong lager first thing in the morning. Joanne's self-harm escalated as well. She was using razor blades to cut herself, and the scars were getting more noticeable. John said he tried to help the mother of his children, but to no avail. She would leave for weeks with her lovers and come home with bite marks on her neck. John said, quote, I tried everything to get her off booze and drugs and show her what she had sitting right in front of her, but she wouldn't even give the baby a cuddle or a kiss. John recognized that he was letting Joanne walk all over him. This continued until an incident occurred in 2009, an incident when John realized Joanne was no longer the woman he had fallen in love with. Joanne had drank two liters of vodka and was wearing black knee-high boots. That's a lot. It is. Two liters? Two liters. I barely get through two liters of water in a day. (laughs) Yeah, of just vodka. That is, wow. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of alcohol. It's amazing she didn't have alcohol poisoning. Yeah. On this day, she pulled out a six-inch dagger from her boot and stabbed the carpet with it. John said she paused to look up at him, and he said her eyes were cold and blank. She was thinking about killing him? I don't know. She just pulled this dagger out of her boot, stabbed the carpet, and was staring at him. And he said there was nothing in her eyes, basically. And what the heck is she doing with a knife in her boots? Exactly. Probably to protect her while she's doing sex work? Maybe. That is crazy. It is. And I'm not sure if she was still doing sex work at this time. But she had been when they were apart, and she could have been, to continue to get money for her drugs and alcohol. Who keeps a knife in their boots? I know. In their knee-high boots. Yeah. Not the PTA moms I know. Yeah. (laughs) Either way, he was terrified, and he knew he had to take their children and get as far away from her as possible. And that is exactly what he did. Okay, that's a good thing. It sounds like he should have left a long time before that even. Mm Mm-hmm. He just was really trying to help her. He wanted to keep their family together. Well, it's so hard when you love someone. You Mm -hmm. do want to help them. Exactly. And you don't really want to break up your family if you can help it. Mm -hmm. I changed my opinion about John. Okay. (laughs) I did too. Joanne didn't make any attempts to see her children after this. And from what I could gather, she didn't see them again until her oldest daughter went to visit her in prison many years later. She didn't even care. Even that would mess you up as a child. Yeah. Your own mom not wanting you. It would be a hard pill to swallow. But hopefully they can just consider the source. She didn't want anybody. She only cared about herself. Right. 
And it seems like she has difficulty creating attachments. Are you thinking that's just because of the drugs? Yeah, because she had a really strong relationship with her sister growing up. Mm. It was just she wanted drugs more. Yeah, I think she reveled in this wild lifestyle. I think all of it was enticing to her. Well, it's so hard when you have an addictive personality that if that's what sets your dopamine receptors off, that's what sets them off. And then you just keep going after it more Mm -hmm. and more. Yeah, you seek that. After John left her, Joanne continued with her transient lifestyle and did what she needed to do to get her next hit. At some point, and this possibly could have been when she was still with John, Joanne got a tattoo of a star underneath her right eye. And allegedly, she etched this tattoo into her skin by herself. If she did, she actually did a good job. Like, it's not a wonky-looking star. It's a star, but pretty noticeable underneath her eye. Was there any significance to it? Not that she ever revealed. Okay. A year before her 10-day murdering spree in February of 2012, Joanne was admitted into the Peterborough City Hospital and was diagnosed with having antisocial personality disorder, as well as obsessive-compulsive disorder. And we will look a little more at reports about her mental state when we go into the trial information. But I just wanted to mention that this was a year before she had these diagnoses. Her inability to create attachments goes into that disorder. Yeah, I guess that probably would. Yeah. On March 19th, 2013, Joanne Dennehy would claim her first victim. She had met a man named Lukas Slaboszewski. Lukas was originally from Poland. He moved to England in 2005. He was 31 years old, the same age as Joanne, and worked in a warehouse. The two of them hit it off right away and spent a few days texting back and forth. Lucas was excited about Joanne and had even texted one of his friends back home about what an amazing woman he had met in England. He said life was beautiful now that he had her as a girlfriend. Oh, that just makes it so much more worse when you know that she's going to murder him. Yeah, she was not feeling the same way. But she had this kind of spell over people. The messages between Joanne and Lucas were flirty in nature so he wasn't suspicious when she invited him over for a hookup on a random Tuesday. And just a little side note, this was just two days after St. Patrick's Day, so I wonder if they met at a pub on that day, because it was reported that they didn't know each other for very long. Okay. Just a few days. Joanne texted Lucas an address to meet her at, and he unknowingly walked right into the Peterborough Masonette at 11 Rolston Garth, where he would quickly lose his life. A masonette is like an apartment-style duplex with individual entrances to the outside, if I understand it correctly. We will talk about it in a bit, but this was just one of the places where Joanne was staying. Joanne attacked Lucas right inside her front door. Many believe it was as soon as he entered her home. Oh. But there was no way to really know if it was when he arrived or if she attacked him right before he left. Either way, it was right at the door. Either way, Joanne ended his life by stabbing him in the heart with a pocket knife. And not the tiny type you took to girls camp with you either. It looked more like a hunting knife with a thicker blade. Just randomly. Mm -hmm. And right in the heart. Criminologists would later comment that Joanne's choice of weapon and killing method was quite unusual for a woman. Most women choose poisoning as their modus operandi or their MO. With a knife, you have to get really up close and personal. It is a vicious weapon more commonly chosen by men, which speaks to her brutality. If a woman was to go on a killing spree, she would be more likely to choose a gun as her weapon of choice because of the space it can create between herself and her victim. Well, and to get that close to kill somebody with a knife, she would have to be right next to them, which if she's going up against men, most oftentimes men can overpower women just from their sheer size. 
Exactly. And that's what makes her so terrifying because the knife is her choice of weapon the whole time. Ooh. So it wasn't like a weapon of opportunity. She purposely chooses this weapon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that does say a lot about her. It does. And she's pretty skilled because as far as I could tell, she never sustained any wounds herself doing this. So she was always sneaking up on them? Yeah. They weren't suspecting it? No. Very few of them even end up with defensive wounds. Wow. After killing Lucas, Joanne stuffed his body in a wheelie bin, like what you use to roll out recycling or trash to your curb. After doing this, Joanne decided to show Lucas's body to a 14-year-old girl. What? Why? I don't know. She's like, come here, I want to show you this. It was a friend of hers or a girl that she knew in the neighborhood. And she wanted to show her Lucas's body in the wheelie bin. Was she claiming it or she was like, oh, I just found this? Oh, I'm sure she claimed it. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> she would later try to deny doing this. But based on the detailed testimony of this young girl, it was clear that she had, in fact, seen Lucas after he was murdered. And I'm assuming this girl was too scared to come forward right away. And we cannot blame her. How terrifying for a child to be put in that situation. She later said she would see Joanne standing by the wheelie bin, just smiling. How long did he stay in the wheelie bin for? A little while. So she would go back out and stand beside it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it stayed in that wheelie bin for a couple of days. Oh my, that's bizarre to me. You think he wouldn't want to be seen anywhere near it, but she's sitting there claiming it? Yeah, standing by it smiling. I bet she got off on it. Oh. I bet it gave her this rush, like... I killed this man and here he is in the garbage. Probably. She knew she would need help disposing of the body. So she ended up calling up her friend Gary Stretch. Gary was an ex-con as well and reportedly worshipped the ground Joanne walked on. Like I said earlier, she was said to have some type of magnetism over people. Gary was 47 at the time and stood 7 feet 3 inches tall. Oh, He was a massive man. And I thought how iconic that his last name was Stretch. Because he was so tall. Yeah. I read in only one report that his last name was actually Richards, but even his court documents had his name listed as Stretch. So that's what we're going with. So she calls in this big brood of a man to help her get rid of another man's body. Yes. When Joanne would yell jump, Gary asked how high. So when she said she needed his help, he did not hesitate. To have a friend like that... <laughs> That's a real partner in crime. It just speaks to how much control or how much allure she had over this man, though. And she seems to have this over everybody. This is not the first time we're going to see this in this case, that people are just drawn to her and will do anything for her. So she's super charismatic. Mm -hmm. hmm. The two of them purchased a Vauxhall Ostracar to transport Lucas's body. I read reports that Joanne's landlord helped them buy the car, but I cannot confirm if he knew why they needed the car. Why is her landlord helping her buy a car? Oh, he's mesmerized by her as well, and we're going to get to him soon. Oh. Gary decided to nickname the car The Hearse. Oh, that's dark. It is. Gary's really disturbing, to be honest. We'll get more into him, too. Joanne and her henchmen dumped Lucas's body in a ditch on the edge of Peterborough at Thorny Dyke and didn't look back. Ten days later, Joanne struck again. It was March 29th, which happened to be Good Friday that year. Joanne also stayed at 38 Byfield, where she had her own room, but other people lived there as well, and they shared a bathroom with each other. One of Joanne's housemates there was a man named John Chapman. He was 53 years old and was a veteran of the Falklands War. Joanne and John were known to not get along. A neighbor claimed that John told her that Joanne was a 
Mad Woman. Joanne claimed that she caught John peeking in on her while she was in the shared bathroom. However, Joanne was known to have a habit of lying and had been drinking with John and another housemate named Leslie Layton and Gary Stretch just a few days prior. So they didn't like each other, but they were drinking together a few days before this. Well, they lived in the same house. Yes. So you try to get along. Yeah. So this is more of like a roommate situation. Right. His attack occurred in the wee hours of the morning while he laid in his bed. He was later found with four times the legal driving alcohol limit in his blood, so it is unsure if he was passed out when she attacked or if he was sleeping. Either way, he likely had no idea what was about to happen to him and didn't get the chance to defend himself. So does she ever give a reason why she's killing these men just out of the blue? Yeah, we'll talk about it. Okay. But basically just for fun. What? Mm-hmm. That just makes it so much more scary. I can never decide if it's scarier if they are cold and calculated and they plan it and they have a reason or if they just enjoy it and it's so random. It's way scarier to me when they are doing it just for the enjoyment of it. Yeah, I think so too. Joanne stabbed John in the neck, severing his carotid artery, and then continued to stab him five more times in the chest. Two of those stab wounds punctured John's heart, and one of them was inflicted with such force that it sliced right through his breastbone. What? Mm-hmm. She's not a very big girl. That's impressive strength. It is. It just shows to what rage and force she has. Hmm. Because these are grown men that she is attacking. In just 10 days, Joanne had already escalated in the ferociousness of her attacks. After killing John... Joanne called up her trusty sidekick, Gary, and said, quote, Oops, I did it again. No way. I assume this was said in a jokingly manner to play on the Britney Spears song of that same title. Yeah, it sounds like it. Mm-hmm. So she's sitting in there joking about it. Yeah, oops, I did it again. Ha ha ha. Yeah, not funny, Joanne. What a dirtbag. Just like she was standing outside the curb with her little rolly bin. Yeah, she's very cold-hearted throughout this whole case. I can see why she's coined UK's most dangerous woman. This time, Joanne also recruited her other roommate, 36-year-old Leslie Layton, who had been drinking with them the few days before, to help clean up the crime scene and get rid of John's body. Leslie was later found with a picture of John's dead body on his cell phone that he had taken at 7.32 a.m. that same day. So basically, Joanne explains to him what she had done and said, hey, we need help moving a body. And Leslie's response was like, okay, great. And then says, wait, let me take a picture first before we move him. I was like, what? She's hanging out with some class act people, hey? Yeah. I think this is all we need to know about Leslie to understand his character. Because I can't even imagine two people in my life that I could call up and be like, hey, I killed someone. You want to help me out? And then, oops, I did it again. And then find a second person to help me. Yeah, that is just bizarre. Yeah, they were more than willing. And a twisted enough person that's going to take a picture with the dead body. Yeah, who does that? Yeah, that's weird. And that would actually get used against him later. As it should. Yeah. Like, that's really cold hearted. It is. That's not like somebody's forcing me to move this body. I'm under duress. They're making me do it. That's like, I am enjoying this. Exactly. And he does try to claim that he was under duress. But this picture kind of puts that nail in his coffin for him. So thankfully, he took it. Gary showed up to the residence, and Leslie ran out to run a few errands before they moved the body. <laughs> so just so relaxed, like, yeah. oh, I gotta go do a few things, we'll meet back here, and I'll help you guys. Just casual, working it into my day. Yep. And before they had time to move John's body, Joanne claimed her third victim that same day. One kill that day wasn't enough for her. 
Her victim was 48-year-old Kevin Lee. Kevin was Joanne's landlord. The one that worshipped her and helped her buy a car to get rid of the first guy's body. Right. But we don't know if he knew that the body was in there or not. Okay. Kevin was a husband and father. But like many others, he unfortunately became infatuated with Joanne. What does she have over all of these people? I don't know. Like a magic spell. Yeah. Potion number nine. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. Joanne gained sympathy with Kevin by telling him that she was severely abused growing up. She told him she eventually killed her father to stop the abuse and served eight years in prison for doing so. This was a lie. Her father was very much still alive, and there was no evidence to suggest that she was abused by him at all. Although, like I said at the beginning, I would not be surprised if she was sexually abused by someone at some point in her early teenage years. But it doesn't seem like it was her dad. It was not her dad. More likely the 20-year-old boys that she was hanging out with. Probably. No offense, 20-year-old boys, but yeah, it was probably the crowds that she was running with. Mm -hmm. Or even just the high-risk situations that she would have been in with. All the drugs and alcohol. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. But no, her father was alive and she did not serve eight years in prison for his murder. So she told the landlord this and he wasn't like, nope, application denied. No, he felt sorry for her. She said she spent all her life being so severely abused that the only way to get out of that was to kill her father. And then she served her time. She got punished for it. So he's like, this poor girl. So she knows how to manipulate people. Yes, Mm. that is the right word. Kevin was astonished at how tough Joanne was. So he hired her to collect rent from tenants that were late with their payments. Oh, that would be terrifying. Yeah. You would not want to be late with your payment. I would not want to come face to face with her. No. In any situation. In return for her strong arming tenants into pain, Joanne was allowed to stay at various locations of properties that Kevin owned for free. Oh, so that's how she had several places to yes. stay. In fact, one of the reasons many believe that Joanne killed John, her second victim, is that he was being served an eviction notice and she allegedly told him she would get him out of her house by any means. This made the judge believe his death was premeditated. Hmm. I could see that. What started out as platonic soon turned into an affair between Joanne and her married landlord slash employer. On Kevin's last day, Joanne tempted Kevin by telling him to come over so she could dress him up and rape him. Oh yeah, she's into BDSM. Mm-hmm. And he must be too. It was an offer he couldn't refuse. This enticed Kevin, so he agreed to meet her at her place at 11 Rolston Garth, the same place where she had murdered Lucas. Did he get farther than the doorway? That's actually debated if she killed him right away or, again, after they had engaged in sexual activity. At some point, after Kevin entered the property, Joanne stabbed him five times in the chest, penetrating his heart and both of his lungs. Unlike her other two victims, Kevin also sustained defensive wounds. He knew what was happening but could not fight her off. That would have been terrifying. I feel like she would have been almost like this demon coming after you because this is a grown man. These were not scrawny men. How they could not fight her off. It's like a feral cat. Yeah. While Joanne was murdering Kevin, John's body was still laying at a different location. They hadn't cleaned it up yet. No. She was still waiting for Leslie to get back from his errands. Yep. Oh, man. So she decided, oh, I feel like doing another one. So I'm going to call Kevin. And she just enjoyed it so much that she couldn't wait. Yeah. That is scary. It is. When night fell, Joanne used her two goonies, Gary and Leslie, to help her load up and get rid of both bodies. To further humiliate Kevin, they dressed him up in a black sequin dress, as Joanne had promised, and posed his body. 
They hiked up his dress to expose his naked buttocks and positioned it upward into the air for all to see. Leslie allegedly stayed in the car while Gary and Joanne did this to Kevin. He was left in a ditch on the outskirts of Peterborough at Newborough. That's so degrading. It really is. And that was her purpose. She wanted to do that. She wanted to humiliate him. But he had always been so nice to her. Mm -hmm. Didn't matter. Hmm. The trio dumped John's body in the same spot where Gary and Joanne had left Lucas's body earlier at Thorny Dyke. At this stop, Leslie had more nerve and did get out of the vehicle. He said he was shocked when he saw another body already laying, and I assume decaying, in the same ditch. She didn't even find a new spot to dump her bodies. No, so Kevin got put in a different ditch, and John gets put in the same ditch that she had put Lucas in. And these were kind of remote areas, so she didn't think that they were going to get caught. And this is how this whole case gets named, the Peterborough Ditch Murders, because she's dumping the bodies in ditches. Hmm. Mere days prior to his death, Kevin reportedly likened Joanne to Uma Thurman from the movie Kill Bill, and as he put it, the woman from The Terminator. That's fitting. Yeah, it really is. The next thing they did was move Kevin's car away from the property where he was killed and set it on fire. The car, not the property. It is believed that Joanne may have had motive for killing Kevin. Some think that he knew she had killed Lucas when he helped her and Gary purchase the car, and she was worried he might tell someone. I was able to find the sentencing report given by Mr. Justice Spencer at the end of her court proceedings. About her reasons for killing Kevin, Justice Spencer said, quote, That may be part of the reason, but it was only part. I am quite sure that the reason you murdered Kevin Lee in the way that you did and dumped his body in the way that you did was to gratify your own sadistic lust for blood. Yeah, it seems like she can't even control herself. Mm -hmm. She's getting shorter and shorter amount of times between killings. Yeah, I totally agree with that statement. Unfortunately, this lust for blood was not yet satisfied. What? I thought you said she kills three. She does kill three, but she tries to kill more. Oh, man. Is she going after Stretch next? No, she never goes after Stretch. Why would she? He's her little henchman. Right. So now she's going after Leslie? No, but I'm about to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> well, she... <laughs> okay, just go on and tell me. Okay. <laughs> I'll stop guessing. <laughs> Obviously, I don't know the new guy. <laughs> no, she actually, her next victim, she chooses at total random. Oh, then that really does speak to her bloodlust. Like, she doesn't even have a purpose now. I just need somebody to kill. Yep. Wow. Yeah, she's super terrifying and just out of control because she would have just kept on killing as long as she could have gotten away with it. I'm Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people. He, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from JeffWoodsRadio.com. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent. Almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com. The day after the double murder, a farmer discovered Kevin Lee's body in the ditch. 
When Joanne and Gary heard this news, they decided to flee. Police had named them as persons of interest. And let's be honest, these two dirtbags would be hard to miss walking down the street. A seven foot guy? Yeah. Yeah. And a woman with a star tattoo on her face. Those are pretty noticeable markers. And not ones you can easily change. Right. The duo stopped in Norfolk to visit one of Joanne's former cellmates, Jillian Page, who later testified in court. She said that when Joanne saw that they were wanted on the news, she became extremely excited. Jillian said Joanne was so ecstatic that she began jumping around and said she knew they were going to end up in jail for a long time, and then compared herself and Gary to the infamous Bonnie and Clyde. And because of this, she wanted to murder at least nine men. Jillian didn't come forward with what she knew right away because Gary threatened to kill her if she did. Oh man, that would be terrifying to have that knowledge that you would be able to prevent somebody's death, but be so afraid for your own life that you weren't able to go forward with it. Yeah, because Joanna's just callously killing people and Gary's backing her up. Mm -hmm. And I'm sorry, as a woman, a seven foot three tall big guy coming over you saying, I'll kill you if you tell. You would listen. Yeah, you'd be scared. Mm -hmm. You'd be questioning for sure. Next, the pair stopped and picked up another man named Mark Lloyd. Mark would later say that he was coerced to go with them against his will. He was afraid of what might happen to him if he protested. Mark said Joanne said to him, quote, I've killed three people. Gary's helped me dispose of them and I want to do some more. I want my fun. What? Yeah. Joanne apparently ran her hand down Mark's neck. He said, quote, it was like being touched by a rattlesnake. If she had told me to put my head through the windscreen, I would have done it. That is so crazy. Have we covered somebody with this much just bloodlust? Usually they have more motive than this. Yeah. And this Mark, it is believed that he was coerced. There's no reason to believe that he's lying. He wasn't going along so that they would keep providing him with drugs or something like that. No. Okay. On April 2nd, four days after her last murder, they made their way to Hereford which was 225 kilometers or 140 miles away. During their stop, Gary and Joanne took bizarre photos. They had their shirts pulled up and one of their legs up on a railing. In this photo, you can see many of the scars that Joanne inflicted on her torso. She also has handcuffs dangling from her belt loop. I'm assuming they were trying to look provocative, but it comes across more disturbing in my opinion. That sounds like it was such a bizarre photo. Yeah, and if you look online, you can find it easily. Once back in the car, Joanne said she wanted Gary to find her someone else to stab. The only specification she gave is that it had to be a man, and she wanted him to be walking a dog. Oh, no. That's how she met John. That's true, walking so, a dog. is she trying to find a replacement for him? I don't believe so. She never looked back. John left with the girls, and she didn't even give it a second thought. Hmm. But I do have a few thoughts on this. First, she had said that she didn't want to hurt a woman, especially one with children. Pairing this with her protecting her babies in utero by abstaining from harmful substances makes me wonder if she had wished someone had protected her when she was younger, if she was indeed assaulted. This could also reaffirm her reasoning for wanting to feel powerful over men. If she was assaulted, she would have felt powerless in that moment or moments. Second, it is odd that she wanted to find someone with a dog. I question if this was to up the ante. Did she need a bigger challenge and adding the threat of a dog would do that for her? Because she was clearly seeking a demented thrill. She's got this big seven foot guy that could take care of the dog. But he never gets out of the car. Oh, okay. She does this all on her own. Wow. Yeah. She wants to do all her murdering herself. 
She's independent dirtbag. Yep. And that's where I mean she just wants that power over men. Hmm. She wants that coming from her. And if he helped, that would lessen her feeling of power. Right. Her authority. Yep. They randomly picked out 63-year-old Robin Bariza, a retired fireman who was walking his dog on West Falling Street near the intersection with Homer Street. Gary stopped the car and Joanne ran out like a wild animal. She struck Robin twice before he could even comprehend what was happening. He said, quote, I saw the lady with that thing in her hands. I didn't know what it was. I got worried and then frightened. I said, what are you doing? She said, I'm hurting you. I'm going to effing kill you. So random. Yeah. Robin continued to explain that he had heard the car stop but didn't think anything of it. He just kept walking his dog. He first felt a blow to the back of his right shoulder, and when he turned around, he said it looked like Joanne looked right through him. You would think that she would be just in a blind rage. She would Mm -hmm. look right through him. How do you look at somebody and recognize that they're a human being and still want to kill them? Yeah. So you would have to look right through them. I know in other cases, like even like in the Ted Bundy case, people would say like even his eyes would change color while he was murdering. Like their whole look and countenance will change sometimes. And I think that's what was happening with her. That's what this guy was recognizing. Yeah. Kind of like that soulless glare, I think. Robin tried to fight her off by kicking her, but Joanne wasn't even phased. She just kept trying to stab him. Being a retired firefighter, Robin kept himself quite fit. So this is pretty significant that she was able to overpower him. Was she high and on drugs? She likely was. Okay. But not to the point of being overly intoxicated. Mm -hmm. Because the judge does look at that on the CCTV footage later, and she's not incapacitated. But I'm just wondering, where is she getting her strength from? Or her ability to just ignore her own pain? Yeah, could be. But right from the start, like to slice right through a breastbone and all this damage that she does is very significant for a smaller woman. Mm -hmm. Joanne didn't stop until another car approached and Gary motioned for her to get back into the car. When Joanne hopped back into the car, she kissed Gary's cheek as if to say thanks for stopping. Just all cheerful. Yeah, she's had her stress relief done. Yeah, her little thrill. Or as she said it, some fun. Robin was treated by paramedics and air ambulance to the QE hospital in Birmingham. Miraculously, he survived. He was only stabbed twice, but his injuries were extensive. One wound to his back penetrated the chest wall, bruising a lung and cracking a rib. It also caused a hemoneumothorax. This is when a lung collapses and there is air outside the lung in the space between the lung and the chest cavity, combined with there being blood in that same space. If he didn't receive the medical attention that he did so quickly, he would not have survived this injury. Yeah, the air and the blood make it impossible for that lung to inflate again. Mm-hmm. The other injury shattered his shoulder blade and fractured the bone in his upper arm, miraculously not causing permanent damage to the nerves in his arm, which would have caused him to lose the use of that arm. His guardian angels had to have been looking out for him that day. And I can't even believe how much damage she did with just two stab wounds. Not just, I wouldn't even want to be stabbed once, but she definitely did as much damage as she could with each blow. She knew where she was stabbing. Which, where did she get that information? I don't know. Killer instinct, maybe. That's disturbing. Yeah. She wasn't like looking up on the internet how to kill somebody. The best place to stab somebody. Yeah, this wasn't something she was educated in. Wasn't like she was a butcher or anything like that that had that previous knowledge. She wasn't a nurse. She wasn't... No, nothing that would make her an expert on this. Because Joanne wasn't able to kill Robin, they continued their search for another dog-walking man. No way. She wasn't satisfied. 
So even though we've left this crime scene with a whole bunch of evidence and witnesses, we're going to go on looking for the next person. Yeah. She's just out of control. She's not giving any thought to getting captured or anything. No. Well, she had said to her former cellmate, I know we're going to end up in jail for a long time. I just want to kill as many as I can so we can be like Bonnie and Clyde. Wow. She's only focusing on the fun, that thrill that she's having, that rush, and killing as many as she can. Well, hopefully it ends soon. (laughs) This will be her last victim. Gary drove to a cul-de-sac close to a path where people often walk their dogs. Gary was familiar with the area because it was close to where his grandmother used to live. Oh, that's disturbing. Yeah, he's such a dirtbag too. I feel like I keep saying that. That's disturbing. That's disturbing. But this case is disturbing. It's really disturbing. I think that's what drew me to this case is just the callousness of it. (laughs) Christy likes disturbing cases. (laughs) Well, I think because it's so far reaching from what we feel as humans, like how can someone actually just randomly pick a guy walking his dog and want to end his life? And find murdering fun. Yeah. Like, this is my pastime. Right. And after doing one, just being right ready to go again. This isn't jumping off the diving board in the pool. Oh, that was fun. Let's go do it again. This is trying to end a person's life. And so to me, it's just so bewildering that there are actually humans that behave this way. What makes it more disturbing for me is that there's at least a little bit amount of time that you know that she's not just all drug crazed, right? She's not on an LSD trip where she's hallucinating and not thinking properly. Like there's enough time in between that she is actually wanting this high from killing people. Oh, yeah. Those first three were premeditated. She knew exactly what she was doing. And she's lucid for a lot of it. She cannot blame it all on drug and alcohol use. Hmm. Near this walking path, they found 56-year-old John Rogers walking his dog. And I'm going to call him John Rogers because this is now the third John in our case. Again, Gary stopped and Joanne jumped out of the car and raced towards her victim just like she had done only moments earlier. She first attacked John Rogers from behind. She stabbed him in the back until he was able to turn around. When he did, she continued to stab him face to face. In between stabbings, Joanne would push John Rogers until he eventually fell to the ground. Once she had him immobilized, Joanne continued to viciously inject her knife into his flesh. She did this until she was certain he wouldn't survive. Once satisfied, she grabbed his dog and got back into the car and they took off. She took his dog? She did. As like a memento? I don't know why she did. But both dogs, as far as I can tell, were returned to their rightful owners and were unharmed. But yeah, she steals his dog. So bizarre. Yeah. So she just wanted a dog and that's why she was choosing a guy with a dog? I don't know what was going through her mind at that time. She obviously wasn't thinking clearly. No. But it is pretty random. I'm surprised the dogs didn't attack her. Maybe they did and she just was kicking them off. Like, I don't know. I was surprised at that too, actually. My dog? I don't know if someone could get that many stabs in on me before my dog would have intervened. (laughs) Your dog scares me. (laughs) My dog's a beast. (laughs) He does make me feel safe when I go walk him in the evenings. I don't think mine would. (laughs) But they can feel that tension. They know when something's really not okay. John Rogers was stabbed over 30 times. And despite all odds, he too survived. What a fighter. Yeah. And just in the middle of daylight, people around, she was able to stab him 30 times. She's like a rabid animal, honestly. It sounds like she's a feral cat. She does. Like this is (laughs) what comes to my mind when you're describing this is those crazy barn cats that just jump out and attack you from nowhere. Yeah, she's definitely behaving that way. 
But then I guess maybe she'd be more like a polar bear because they're, aren't they the only animal that kills for pleasure? Not out of necessity? Yeah, maybe. I think they are. Yeah, because these people aren't even threatening her. No, she's coming up to these men from behind. She's it, first starts stabbing them in behind. They have no idea she's even coming. And actively seeking them out. Yeah. Like, oh, now I want this one. According to court documents, John Rogers had, quote, deep wounds to his chest, abdomen, and back. Both lungs had collapsed. His bowel was perforated and exposed. Had he not received the most expert and prompt medical treatment, he would have died from these injuries. He also received wounds to his hands and arms, which could have resulted in irreparable nerve damage. Again, had he not received immediate medical care, John Rogers would have not survived this attack. People on the street stopped to help him, and he was also transported to the hospital by air ambulance. John Rogers later said about Joanne during his attack, quote, She didn't seem to be showing any emotion. She didn't seem to be enjoying herself. She just seemed like she was going about business. As I lay there, I thought, this is where I'm going to die. Oh, that would be an awful feeling. Mark, the man in the back seat whom they had taken against his will. Oh, yeah, I forgot about him. Right? There's still this random guy in the back yeah. seat. And he's witnessing all this happening. And imagine how frightened he is. Like, if I do anything wrong, this is going to be me. You would just be cowering. I can't even imagine the trauma that Mark had to go through during this as well. So he's in the back seat now with the dog. He's still in the backseat. Yeah, he's witnessed all this. He later said that Joanne struck these men like in the film Psycho. He said she basically thrust her knife into them by putting her whole weight into it. And so that's how she's so strong too. He also said that after the attacks, Gary drove off very calmly. It was as if he was leaving a McDonald's drive-thru. Oh, not to attract attention to himself. Yep, just whatever. Don't speed away. Nope. Mark also said that by this time, the blade and handle of Joanne's knife was blackened with blood and Joanne herself stunk of blood. Oh, that iron metallic smell. Yeah. I could just smell it when I read that. Because these attacks were bloody. She's getting her hands dirty during these. And so the whole knife and the handle were just covered. And as it was drying, it was turning black and she just reeked. I can't even imagine what sight she would have looked like. No. I wonder if John Rogers had to go through body fluids testing because the blood from the first guy would still be on them. So that's like a blood exposure. Yeah, that's true. And I don't know if she even cleaned the knife in between any of the other killings. It didn't seem like it. I've never thought about that before. And like I said, the judge believed that Mark was not a willing participant in any of the crimes and he was never charged. He too was a victim. And hopefully he got some therapy for his PTSD. I hope so. I would need it. That's for sure. A nationwide hunt was implemented for the arrests of Joanne and Gary. Thankfully, with the use of CCTV footage, they were found and arrested later that same day. Yeah, it doesn't sound like they're trying to hide it all. No. They're probably out looking for another victim. Yeah. And like I said, they're pretty easy to spot and the type of car that they're driving. They weren't too hard to find. And I think the UK has really great CCTV footage. They I think do. everything is being filmed, which is awesome. The next morning on April 3rd, the bodies of Lucas and John were discovered. Another man named Robert Moore, who was 55, was also arrested for housing known fugitives. He had allowed Gary and Joanne to spend two nights at his home with him while they were on the run from police. So I know there's a lot of names in here, but just letting you know, another man was also arrested at that time. Likely somebody that Joanne had talked into doing them a favor. Mm -hmm, exactly. 
And did he know that they were murdering people at the time? He did. And so we'll wow. talk to we'll talk about him too. But yeah, he let them stay and didn't go to the police. There are so many people that knew about this. I know. And that's just what's kind of crazy. How she just can get all these people to do what she wants. Again, what a wasted talent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she could have been some great team leader. Just shouldn't have been a dirtbag leader. So crazy. It's wild. The trials began in November 2013. When it was time for Joanne to make her plea, she shocked everyone, including her own defense team, when she matter-of-factly pled guilty to all accounts. She said, quote, I've pleaded guilty, and that's that. Her barrister tried to protest and requested time with his client, to which Joanne interrupted and told the court, quote, I'm not coming back down here again just to say the same stuff. It's a long way to come to say the same thing I have just said. So did she want to go to prison? She pled guilty. I don't know. Well, just with her statement that she made to that other woman about, yeah, we're going to go to prison after this. Like, was that her goal? I don't think it was her goal. (laughs) She just didn't care if she did or not. I think she wanted to be in control. Mm. So her defense team had told her, you need to plead not guilty. This is what we're going to do. And she was like, nope, I'm taking this into my own hands. I am not doing what these guys are telling me to do. That makes sense with what you've told me about her personality. Yeah. Joanne's sister Maria said about this, quote, I think she did that to control the situation. She likes people to know she's the boss. Makes you wonder, was she always the boss when the two of them played together as children? Oh, probably. And she was the older sister. Yeah. And thankfully, the judge allowed her plea to stand. So he didn't think that she had any mental health issues that were interfering with her making that plea. No, but we are going to talk about her mental health issues in a minute. Despite Joanne's guilty plea, Gary and Leslie both pled not guilty of the charges they faced. They claimed they were afraid of Joanne and had no choice but to help her. And a fun little fact with that, Gary was dumb enough to write Joanne five different love letters as they awaited trial. He said she was the only woman he truly loved and regretted not getting to sleep with her and that he would do anything for her. She was too busy murdering other people to sleep with him. The contents of the letters will make your stomach turn, but I will share a few quotes. Oh, thanks for that. You're welcome. If I have to know, so do you. This is our deal. (laughs) He wrote, quote, So looking forward to seeing you, babe. Well, your sexy smile and those evil eyes of yours. Oops, evil meant to angel eyes. LMFAO. You have a dirty and dark mind. See you really soon. Your biggest supporter. I love you always. Love Undertaker. And then he puts seven X's for kisses. Hubby for lifey. He also referred to her as his devil in the flesh a sweet bee, a bad girl, and an angel in sheep's clothing. And I don't know about you, but it doesn't sound to me like he was under much duress as he claimed. No, no duress at all. No, like how dumb. You don't think they're going to be reading these letters that you're sending to her? And she was reciprocating the letters, but his were all just gushing about her. I'm still trying to envision this seven foot burly guy writing (laughs) all of these little love notes. Yeah. But he was clearly infatuated with her and for him to be like, oh, I regret that we never got to sleep together and I really wanted to sleep with you because I love you, not just because I wanted to have sex kind of a thing. Kind of shows me too that she was not interested that way. And so she just was keeping him under her thumb, keeping him wanting more. Yeah, she was manipulating him. Yeah, stringing him along. She was probably very well aware that that's what he wanted from her. Oh, yeah. And so by dangling that in front of him all the time, she kept him doing what she wanted him to do. Yeah, thinking he's going to have that chance. Joanne was examined by psychiatrists at Bronzefield Prison in Surrey and was diagnosed as suffering from 
paraphilia sadomasochism, which meant she experienced sexual excitement from inflicting pain and humiliation or bondage. This could pertain to receiving pain during sexual activity as well, which makes sense considering she would cut herself during the act. But why not just keep it at regular BDSM? Like, why take it to the next level of actually killing people? It wasn't enough for her. She was also diagnosed with psychopathic, antisocial, and borderline personality disorders. She was said to have superficial charm, callous disregard for others, being a pathological liar, and a diminished capacity for remorse. So all of those diagnoses are interesting because those are all diagnoses that usually you can see before adulthood. Mm -hmm. So why was nothing picked up before? They're not ones that a switch flips and just happen in adulthood. Right. And that is how it was described for her is it was just she all of a sudden took this dark turn. Yeah. Those all show up like at least in your teen years. And that's when things escalated for her was in her teens. Maybe it was these disorders developing and maybe she wasn't abused. And she was coping with it through alcohol and drugs. Maybe. It's hard to say. Hmm. Joanne had told one of the psychiatrists that she killed to see how it would feel. She said, quote, to see if I was as cold as I thought I was. Then it got moorish and I got a taste for it. Meaning she wanted more. Okay. She also referred to her killings as a fetish. These types of dirtbags, like we kind of talked about, are one of the most dangerous in my opinion. When the more they kill, the more they crave it. Yeah, that is so scary. Yeah. That's just getting into an evil that most people never can. It is also said that these disorders manifested themselves in anger, aggression, impulsivity, and irresponsibility. She did not feel remorse. She was skilled at lying and had mastered the craft of manipulation. She was an extremely dangerous individual. The judge referred to her as a, quote, cruel, calculating, selfish, and manipulative serial killer. At the end of the trial, all of those involved in the crimes were found guilty. I won't go through the court details because there is no doubt who was involved and to what extent, but I will quickly go through their charges, the judge's reasoning, and sentences. The sentences were given together on February 28, 2014. Gary John Stretch was convicted of two counts of attempted murder and for prevention of lawful and decent burial for all three victims. The judge pointed out that he used his knowledge of the areas to help Joanne pick out victims as well as dispose of bodies. He also helped to clean up crime scenes. The judge also reflected on Gary's past criminal record. He had been in jail many times prior for things like theft, but he also had a restraining order placed against him along with harassment charges. So he was violent. Mm -hmm. He also had threatened his former partner's life and then violently prevented that said partner from providing evidence against him. Gary was sentenced to two life sentences in prison, with the minimum time served being 19 years. He was also sentenced to a concurrent term of 15 years for his other charges. If he is ever released on parole, the judge ordered that he remain on license for the remainder of his life. And it sounds like he needs to be observed for the rest of his life. Yes, totally agree. This judge is amazing. I really enjoyed reading through his sentencing reports. Leslie Paul Layton was convicted of preventing the lawful burial of John and Kevin and perverting the course of justice because he had lied to police when originally questioned. The judge believed that he did not participate in the murders, but that he did willingly help hide the bodies. There were ample opportunities for him to go to authorities, but chose not to. Plus, he took that photo of John's dead body as a memento. His friends testified that he was visibly distraught after his participation, 
But even if this is true, it did not prompt him to go to the police and tell them what he knew. He even lied when questioned. He was sentenced to 14 years in prison total for all of his crimes. Robert James Moore admitted to assisting an offender. He gave shelter to Joanne and Gary for those two nights, fully aware of the heinous crimes that they had committed and did not go to the police. The judge did take into consideration that he had no previous criminal history and understood that he was under Joanne's spell. He was sentenced to three years in prison with the possibility of release after serving half of his sentence. If he was released early, he was ordered to remain on license for the duration of the sentence. Although Joanne pled guilty to her crimes, she blamed alcohol consumption for her actions. The judge rejected this claim based on the CCTV footage of Joanne. She appeared euphoric after attacking her last two victims and was clearly not inebriated to the point of being not responsible for her actions. The judge also pointed out how her evil actions affected the loved ones of her victims as well as the ongoing lives of her surviving victims. Her two victims that lived, they probably had extensive psychological and physical difficulties after that attack. Oh, they absolutely did. Joanne Christine Dennehy was convicted of murdering Lucas Slavazweski, John Chapman, and Kevin Lee, as well as the attempted murders of Robin Bariza and John Rogers. Her other charges included the prevention of lawful and decent burial of her victims. For her premeditated murder charges, she was sentenced to life imprisonment with the term of a whole life order. This means she will never be released from prison. To ice the cake, Joanne was given decades of additional time for her other crimes. It won't make a difference in how much time she actually spends behind bars, but it's the principle, I think. Which seems fitting. It does. Because she would do it again. Mm -hmm. I love when they do that too, because it always just covers the bases of what if there's a technicality? You get it on this, but we still have you for this. Right. And there was decades of time for that. Mm -hmm. To put things into perspective regarding how rare it was for a woman to receive a life sentence with a whole life tariff in the UK, the only other women at that point who were given that sentence were vile dirtbags Myra Hindley and Rosemary West. Hmm. Both women who were involved in couple serial killings of the most abhorrent nature. They are both on my list to cover one day, but we're going to come back to Rosemary West in a hot minute in this case. But just wanted to point out that those were the only other two women. So she's one of three. Yes. At that point, I'm not sure if anyone else Mm -hmm. has since, but it's super rare. Before we end today, I do have a bit of aftermath updates regarding this case to share. You aren't quite rid of Joanne just yet. True to being an evil mastermind, Joanne planned an elaborate escape from prison. While she was still on remand, before the trial, she wrote down an extensive plan to bust out in her diary. Did it have to do with seducing a guard? No, the opposite of that. This plan included killing or at least seriously injuring a prison officer so she could then cut off his finger and use that amputated finger to unlock the prison's biometric system. Ooh. But maybe she was going to use her sex appeal to lure him in. I wouldn't put it past her. I wouldn't either. And come on, when are they going to learn not to write down their plans? I mean, it's great that they do, but does she not think while you're being held in your remand that they're going to go through your things? It sounds like her and Stretch didn't think that that was a possibility. Right. But she's probably feeling pretty invincible. She's just stabbed nearly five men to death. But she's in custody. She can't be feeling that invincible. They found her. They caught her. Yeah, but I think she would still have that I'm all powerful kind of mentality. As she's being bossed around by the guards. She had a plan to take back control. She probably needed that plan to survive. Yeah. 
Because of this finding, Joanne was placed in solitary confinement from September 2013 to September 2015. That's a long time in solitary confinement. It was. So it was before court began until well after it finished. Joanne claimed afterwards that the isolation and solitary confinement left her tearful and upset, which led to more self-harm. Oh, boo-hoo for her. Exactly. The high court rejected any claims made by her that her human rights were violated. And I always think, what about your victim's human rights, Joanne? Yeah. Like, why, when we have these ruthless killers and then they cry that they're not being treated the way that they should, when you've just viciously murdered and tried to viciously murder people, I don't understand it. But I guess it's just that selfishness, right? Mm -hmm. They can only see their side of the story. They're not empathetic to anyone else. They can only feel what they feel. It's true. But it was deemed that her human rights were not even violated. She was planning to escape in a brutal way and they needed to isolate her. The court stated that her segregation was done in accordance with the law and they were doing what was necessary and proportionate. In 2018, while serving time at HMP Bronzefield, Joanne requested permission to marry her cellmate, Haley Palmer. What? And she was granted this permission. No way. However, Haley's family were against it and worried for their daughter's life. And I think rightfully so. That same year, the two lovers attempted to carry out a suicide pact with one another. News reports stated that Joanne's throat had been cut and Haley's wrists had been slit. She cut her throat. Mm-hmm. But they did both survive. In June of 2020, Joanne was in a different relationship with a prisoner named Emma Aitken, who was only 25 and was incarcerated for her part in a man's murder. Oh, they would have been besties then. Yeah, they definitely had something to bond over. And it wouldn't have been that long after she had talked another person into committing suicide with her. Right. Which again just shows this hold she has on people. A year later, in May of 2021, Joanne was back with Haley and stated that they still intended to get married. Haley has already been released from prison. She had been serving time for robbery. Hopefully she learns to run the other way. Yeah, I do not have any update if they are back together. If they got married, I couldn't find anything else. Okay, now our hot minute involving Rosemary West has arrived. And this kind of blew my mind. In 2019, Joanne was transferred to Low Newton Prison in County Durham. And guess who else just so happened to be imprisoned there? West. Yes, Rosemary West. Allegedly, Joanne threatened to kill Rosemary. And I'm not sure if it was because Rosemary murdered children, including a stepchild and one of her own, and Joanne was so protective of children, or if Joanne just wanted to establish that she was the queen of the block now. Oh, I'm guessing the latter. Yeah, but she was protective over children, so it might have been both. It's always both. <laughs> yeah. These claims must have come with some punch because Rosemary had to be transferred to a different prison for her safety. Rosemary was 65 years old at the time and had spent over a decade at this prison. Rosemary was completely devastated about moving because this prison had become her home. She referred to it as losing her, quote, easy life. You're not supposed to have an easy life in prison. Exactly. <laughs> I put that in here later. <laughs> but as I read more into it, this easy life was because she had established her ground and had others doing things for her, like bringing her meals to her. So this probably had more to do with it than even the children part. Mm-hmm. Either way, Joanne was in and Rosemary was out. Low Newton is the highest security prison in that area, and that is definitely where Joanne needs to be. And Joanne didn't need to worry about running into Myra Hindley as she had passed away in 2002. Hmm. It seems like Joanne has been able to establish her queen pin status with Rosemary gone. 
Allegedly, she is allowed to bake cheesecakes and trifles with her girlfriend while others are in their cells. And a lot of other inmates are rightfully frightened of her. How is she getting out to bake? Good question. How does she get people to do all these things for her? I don't know what kind of magic spell. Maybe she has some voodoo magic. Who knows? That just seems so bizarre. Yeah, very interesting to say the least. The last thing I will share is an update on Joanne's children. They grew up with their loving father, John, and his new wife. In the past, John expressed concern over not knowing how to explain to their daughters what a monster their mother had become. He said his eldest daughter was terrified that she would grow up to become just like Joanne. She asked him if she will turn out to be a killer like her mom. And the youngest had no idea what her mother had done. He was dreading that conversation. That would be so sad. About Joanne, John said, quote, I really believe Joe is pure evil, pure and simple. That is why I took the girls as far away from her as possible. He also said, quote, It was inevitable this was going to happen. She is either going to do something to herself or to someone else. She deserves what is coming to her. And if the death penalty was still here, she would deserve that. I didn't look for a current update on Joanne's two girls, but I sincerely hope that they are thriving and know that they are nothing like their mom. That being said, one of Joanne's daughters, after finally visiting her mom in prison, said to the Sunday Mirror, quote, She deserves to spend the rest of her life in prison. I'm sorry to the victims. I can't imagine what they went through. And that is the story of a blood-crazed, cold-hearted, sadistic and manipulative dirtbag, the ever-terrifying Joanne Dennehy. What a wild ride, Christy. It was. <laughs> it was a wild ride when I was researching it. I was like, holy cow, this woman is unreal. I am so curious to how she manipulates people so well. Yeah, she's just got some kind of evil charm to her, I guess. Yeah. But we'll be back next week. Melissa, are you taking us across the pond for your St. Patrick's Day case? I am. Well, I'm looking forward to it, and I hope you guys will join us then. See ya. Bye. (laughs) And then this should make our voices sound more dynamic as well. Ooh, yeah, because we were at zero. We were zeros. <laughs> now we're minus 12. <laughs> Wait, is that a good thing? <laughs> I don't know. You got to try something new every day. <laughs> Variety is the spice of life. <laughs> What'd you say? I said my mic is in my face. Get it out of your face. <laughs> Wrestlers and gingerbread and ketchup. Oh, my. <laughs> the random things in our recording room. <laughs> Usually there is little to no time between killings, even though the lo- even though the lo- the lo- location. I'm being all awkward and weird. Okay. As soon as you start recording, I end up with so much saliva in my mouth. That's how I feel too. And then I'm like, <laughs> I just kind of even breathe and talk. And- <laughs> <laughs> I'm a two-year-old, so I laugh at. <laughs> right after we take a break. Hey. Hi, everybody. <laughs> Welcome to our show. How many listeners will we get if we talk like this all the time? <laughs> We're going to unbury some motives. <laughs> grab a shovel and join us. Real friends, grab a shovel and join you. Yeah. <gasps> That's a t-shirt. It is. <laughs> okay, back to business.
Hey, we're live, pal, and we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. Hi, this is Candace Sampson, the voice behind What She Said. My show is your destination for stories that not only entertain, but also educate and empower. Every week, I spotlight strong female voices from across Canada, women who are changing the narrative and driving change. Don't miss out on these inspiring episodes. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music, or head over to whatshesaidtalk.com. What She Said can also be heard on BlastTheRadio.com, Mondays at 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. That's BlastTheRadio.com. It's time to dive into the stories that truly matter. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.